right here on the Armstrong Show with Glenn. And Drew. And Gabe. And we are uh, doing a little makeup show here for last week's missed show. So this is actually the uh, Feb 5 show. Thanks to all of our patrons for supporting our show, continuing to be a part of what we have going on, and also to, to help us in doing a lot of the community service uh, type things that we do. So we really appreciate you guys. And helping us to pay for all those things because they're free for the recipient, but they're not free for us. So thank you very much for helping us improve our communities and yours. A lot of upcoming independence training classes. If you're not getting – we have so much coming up, so many of our great programs. And a lot of our programs that we don't teach a lot, like field carving, for example, is this month. Uh, A lot of classes we don't teach a lot are coming up. we got intro to communications, uh, radio communications with our guy Ted. Um, all kinds of programs, tons of stuff coming up. If you guys are not involved in it, you need to get involved in it. All right, on to some news. Let's see, what do we, what do we got first? What do we got first here? Hawaii's highest court ruled Wednesday that Second Amendment rights, as interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court, do not extend to Hawaii's citizens, citing the spirit of aloha. In the ruling, which was penned by Hawaiian Supreme Court Justice Tom, I'm sorry, Todd Eddins, The court determined that states retain the authority to require individuals to hold proper permits before carrying firearms in public. The decision also concluded that the Hawaii Constitution broadly does not afford a right to carry firearms in public places for self-defense. Further pointing to the spirit of aloha and even quoting HBO's TV drama, The Wire. Um, So... Get this. Uh, Article 1, Section 17 of the Hawaii Constitution mirrors the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, the Hawaii Supreme Court decision states. We read those words differently than the current United States Supreme Court. We hold that in Hawaii there is no state constitutional right to carry a firearm in public. So that's where, you know, uh, Hawaii is sitting right now. So uh, basically they said that they supersede the Constitution. And that they shouldn't have to listen to Supreme Court. New York and California both did the same thing. They didn't agree to the Bruin, or, excuse me, agree to the Bruin decision, and then they passed additional laws that limit things like concealed carry. And th- this just totally guts the Supreme Court's power. Here's the here's the problem. I am I'm I'm torn between these two, right? First of all, I believe – we were actually just talking about this before the show. I believe that all states have the right to do whatever they want to. Self-govern. Self-govern. States should be allowed to self-govern. And if Hawaii wants to say no, let's say, to certain things, that's okay. However, if you're going to be a part of the United States, then the U.S. Constitution is what regulates everything. And the Supreme Court – is given the task of interpreting that constitution and how it should apply to the people. So Hawaii is welcome to say, for example, marijuana is legal or marijuana is not legal. That is not something that is in the constitution. Hawaii is is welcome to say, we want to make the drinking age of alcohol 17. All right. That's not something that's in the Constitution. They they can say, uh, we don't want women to vote anymore. All right. Oh, wait, you can't say that. It's a part of the Constitution. Right. See my point? You're not allowed to say things that aren't or you're not allowed to, to make rules about things that are against the Constitution if you're a state. 
you're not allowed to make rules that go above and beyond what the Constitution allows for things like firearm ownership. So if states want to do that, then it's a really simple thing that the federal government needs to do. And of course, this isn't going to happen, but if this was the United States of Glenn, this would happen. I would say, no problem, Hawaii. America now has 49 states, Hawaii. Yeah, you're on your own. You're on your own. I hope your naval force is real awesome because you don't get to keep ours. Oh, we already have people there? Yeah, we're going to be reconquering Hawaii. And we're going to fucking wipe you off the planet, you shitheads, because now your enemy is the fucking state. And now we're just going to reconquer your place. So if you want to say you want to make rules that don't follow our rules, that's fine. This is how I think it should be done. And, and if, if you have, let's look at what Texas is doing right now. If you have 30 states that want to get together and say, no, we don't want to follow the rules, now you got yourself an army. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's join that and let's all fight back against the, and then let's all restart. We'll have a new constitutional convention. We'll write a new constitution. We'll create new borders for states. I don't care. I'm all for all that shit. Let's do it. Let's fucking do it. Yeah, I'm super for states having their independence because the thing is, it's like, if states have full <laughs> rights to self-govern, then if you don't like it, just fucking leave. Yeah. Don't right? live like, there. Just, don't do business there. Leave. It's that simple. Like if Arizona could say, <clears throat> in the state of Arizona, if you are XYZ, you do not have to tax stamp for FFL items. You can buy whatever the fuck you want. You can own mm-hmm. goddamn Abrams if you want. And if people that live in the state are like, oh, I don't really like that, just just leave. Just go. Go to a state that says, no, you can't do those things. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I Obviously, that's like in an ideal world, but. See, ultimately, I agree with what Hawaii is doing. Just get ready to get fucked. Yeah. Because you're not allowed. I agree that they're trying to say, hey, we have our own state's rights. Go for it. But since you're not going to follow the U.S. Constitution, you're no longer a part of the U.S. We no longer recognize you as one of our states. And now you're going to face the consequences of that. Whatever those mean. I don't give a fuck what your spirit of aloha is. You don't know. I don't give a fuck about that. I you don't give a the shit. What fuck does that even mean? And I don't fucking know. It's some fucking Doesn't gay aloha mean hello? It also just means goodbye, hello, which is super fucking confusing. And spam. I don't know. It could be referencing spam. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> Pineapples. Here's the <laughs> really obese natives. Yeah, like haka. I, I don't know. I'm just no idea. on here. So here's the thing. If you don't follow the rules, you don't get to play our game. Because if the federal government does nothing about this, which they won't, if the federal government does nothing about this, then all that's going to happen is every time a Supreme Court decision comes down that other people don't like because it doesn't match up with their political beliefs, they're just going to not follow it. So then what's to say... So then what's the fucking point of having it? Can we just do that, right? Yeah. I guarantee if this was some (coughs) fucking liberal-ass idea that they're pitching, it would be hell to pay. Oh, yeah. Guarantee it. Or if we had had leadership that had a spine and a set of testicles, then they would stop this from happening because they would say, no, you are... We will give you one fucking day to reverse that decision, and then we're literally not going to recognize you at a state. Like, so on fucking Tuesday at 2 p.m., you're we fucked. don't recognize you as a state anymore, and our military is already there. So unless you have your own fucking military to fight our military, we're about to reconquer Hawaii. I just think it's fucking stupid. 
It's fucking totally stupid. I believe in states' rights ability, and that's, that's what you have to maintain. But if you're going to be part of the United States, then you have to play by the United States rules. Yeah. Or get fucked. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe this is just me, but it's always with the Constitution, it's always more, not less. That was the whole mm-hmm. point. You can always add more, but you're not supposed to take away mm-hmm. from the baseline. And that's exactly what they're doing. Totally what they're doing. If they're adding shit, like, yeah, you have more freedom. You have more capability. That's, oh, fuck, fuck, fine. You're expanding upon it. Cool. That's great. That's always in favor of the people. Yeah. But every time it's, we're going to lessen this, we're going to lessen that. Well, no, they, what they really meant was this. You're not supposed to be able to do that. And they're reducing the rights, that the sovereign rights of the people. Right. And so if those people decide, like, here's the thing that blows my mind still, is that you still have, the, I guarantee you, there's some fucking idiots who live in Hawaii, who own both Gadsden flags, thin blue lines flags, Punisher fucking logos, you know what I mean? A whole bunch of conflicting things, and then they still live in Hawaii. Yeah. It's like all the people behind I mean lines in California. I, I get it, man. I understand, and I know, you know, we have a lot of listeners there, so I feel your pain. And I know it's not easy to just get up and move. But what's interesting is, here's what I hear a lot of people who are like, it's too hard to move out of this place. It, but this is my home and I'm going to defend. Look, do you have no fucking power to do it? Unless you're literally going to start some real shit, you have no, no power to fucking defend your shit. So consider this, okay? If you think it's too hard to move now, wait when things get worse. Yeah. Because that's where they're headed. And when things get worse, it's really going to be fucking hard to move. And if you think th- if you think it's hard to move to a place that likes you and supports you and wants you there, and I'm not inviting you to Arizona, by the way, you can go somewhere else. <laughs> but <clears throat> if you're not if you're not if you think it's hard to move now, and you're a Gadsden flag, I'm a fight in the militia kind of person, do you think it's going to be easier then? So what's interesting to me is people think that change in their life is so hard. And then those same people will talk about fighting some fucking civil war. Yeah, it's like you don't think there's going to be some change in your fucking life then? <laughs> Do you, you think that's going to be easy, dude? Yeah. You're not, food goes away. Water Clean goes water away. goes away. Comfort goes away. Your bed goes away. Yeah. Half the people you know die. Horrible, nasty deaths. Half of the remaining half end up in some fucking political prison somewhere. And that includes your spouses, your kids, your loved ones, your family members, your friends. And every day is your last day. Ammo, short supply. Weapons are breaking with no way to fix them. Yeah. You are living on the run. You are living on the move. You're not going to have a conventional military behind you. This isn't like being in the army, bro. I was in the army, bro. It doesn't not, it's not even kind of sort of like, the same fucking thing. You got babied and taken care of. You got a whole groups of people whose whole job was to just set to take up care logistics. Of just to take care of you. You never even had to fucking... You know what your logistics consisted of? Going to the motor pool and pulling fucking MREs. Right. That's right. what your logistics... Unless you've actually planned that shit, don't talk to me about, yeah, bro, I'm going to fucking sit up here and, yeah, for like 24 hours, then you're going to be fucked, idiot. And then how are you even going to get to that fight? Yeah. Wherever that fight is. Again, you're going to be on the move. Long distances, carrying lots of heavy shit all over the fucking place. Your life on your back. My point to this is, if you think it's hard to move out of a shithole state that fucking hates you, 
They hate you. They fucking hate you. Your government hates you. Your local government, your counties, your state government fucking hate you. Where do you know the federal government hates you? Your local government hates you too. They fucking hate you. They hate everything you fucking stand for. Everything you stand for directly takes away from them power and freedom and money, and that's all they fucking want. And it's cool when people are like, but I'm behind a man. I go, okay, well, you want to live behind a man? That way I can, I can fight the good fight in my state. Cool. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what you're doing to fight the good fight. Tell me what you're doing. Because, bro, if you, if you want to fucking go to it, let me know. I'll show up. I'll help you. But you're not. You're just, you're, what are you, voting? You think that's helping? What are, what are you doing? How are you taking the fight? So if you're not really fighting back actively and you just think it's too difficult to move somewhere else, just wait. It's going to be way harder soon. Do you even live in a place like Hawaii? Let, let the liberals have Hawaii. It's not even that cool of a place for all the other cooler and cheaper places across the world. Way cooler fucking places. And other parts of the world that are not so commercialized and vocalized for their their, uh, political Hmm? needs. Not as expensive. Economy, not as bad. Other places you can go to, way cooler, way less expensive, way more fun, way prettier. Politics down your throat. Yep, and you're not getting all that shit. So, point being is. I just, it does, I don't fucking get how people can keep putting up with this shit. I don't get it. Oh. In that vein, sort of, I was sent to us over here by uh, Privacy Mike. He's got some good tips about this. So basically, there's a company called Raptor Technologies that creates visitor tracking and emergency planning software through K through, for K through 12 schools. Here's the news story. Cybersecurity researcher finds school shooting emergency plans exposed online. The records were accessible to the public online and included highly sensitive school emergency planning and security documents. And this was all through this company. 800 gigs of files that were linked to school software provider Raptor Technologies uh, were all exposed online. So here's some things to consider. First of all, this thing is being used all over the country. Literally thousands and thousands of schools use this shit. There was supposed to be password encryption, etc. But why are they even storing this kind of information online? It's because there's a massive company who has to access all this shit online, right? So it's supposedly been fixed. And it was only luckily found by this security researcher. Uh, let me find his name here. Um, there was a guy here. The records were found by uh, Jeremiah Fowler, an ethical cybersecurity expert who promptly informed Raptor Technologies about the leak. The company then supposedly immediately secured the data. Supposedly. Now consider this. Right? Here's some tips from Privacy Mike when you think about this stuff. Avoid giving your ID to anyone to scan into the system. You never know if it's going to be permanently stored or if it's going to be encrypted. It's interesting now in the world of like digital IDs, how much information people give up that fucking their their faces, their thumbprint, their fingerprints. You don't know where that shit's being stored. Is it being stored encrypted securely? Or is it being stored fucking cloud somewhere? Criminals with access to a scan of your driver's license can do a lot to steal your identity. Give your ID if you absolutely must, such as to a police officer during official contact or to the TSA. But don't give your ID if you can avoid it. Whenever someone asks me for an ID, 
I typically ask them, what kind of IDs do you accept? Because if I can give them something other than my driver's license, I prefer to do that. So places like uh, the bar, um, they'll accept sometimes different types of IDs other than a state driver's license. Sometimes they have to require that and that's what they do. Going to doctor's offices, um, <clears throat> certain type of entrance into certain facilities. If you don't have to give your driver's license, just ask what other IDs they accept. A passport card is nice because a passport card, so if you have a passport, if you guys didn't know this, if you have a passport, you can get a passport ID card. We have them, right? A passport ID card is a legal identification. It can be used for legal identification for all kinds of stuff. It just lacks your home address on it. It lacks a lot of personal information because it's linked directly to your passport. So they don't need to have that address <clears throat> on the card itself. So that's an example of an ID that they'll accept. Sometimes like if you're still in the military, you have an old ID or something, some people will, will take that. They'll accept that as an ID. Again, it lacks personal information. And I like to do things like I put my, I'll, if I hand my ID to someone, I will hold it for them. Or like if you have a wallet that has a window, I used to have a wallet that had a window and I'd put it in there and I would show them that. And a lot of times they'll look at it. Sometimes they, oh, can you take it out for me? But I'll hand my ID to someone and unless they need to take it, if they reach for it, I go, do you have to take the ID or can I just give the information off of it? Like you look at it, it's, it's me. Okay, there's my information that matches the information you have. Do you have to have it in your possession? Because again, I don't know if they're scanning it or whatever. So just be smart with like you're giving your, your literal identification away. Be smart with how and when you choose to do that. I think that's all the news story we're going to cover today because we got too much other stuff to do here. <clears throat> all right. Independence training gear moment. Make sure your holster works in all conditions. You know, this is another thing we were just kind of chit-chatting about before the show. There's a, a tra training organization. I use that term loosely. Um, that's teaching some really old, outdated shit. And, and the reason that they teach it, that they're validating online, is... Uh, one, of course, well, that's how they were taught. And two, well, it works. And then their demonstration is when they're standing static on the range against a static target, it works. Yeah, man, everything works against a fucking static, non-competitive, fully compliant target when you're static. Everything works in that kind of bullshit environment. But I'm using my my handgun potentially in a God-awful environment. I, I got knocked down. I'm on my back. I'm in a, a compromised position. I'm in a vehicle. Uh, I got one hand. I'm, uh, their target is moving. I'm moving. Uh, I'm in a confined space, right? I'm, I'm in a clinch. Like, there's a lot of reasons I may be using my handgun. Obviously, I'm in a fight. I, I only pull my handgun out because I think I need to fucking use it to fight my way out of the situation. So make sure your holster is appropriate for those conditions as well. Any holster works in a static environment. Now go out and work in non-static environments. Like there should be nothing for you to throw your holster on. You know, I know people are like, well, I can't wear my pack with your holster. Wrong holster. <coughs> well, I can't sit down comfortably with my holster. Wrong holster. Well, I can't drive in the car with my holster. Wrong holster. You have the wrong holster. If your holster prevents you from doing anything, it's the wrong setup for you. You need to figure out how to modify it, maybe even completely change it to make it work. Your holster should work in every condition. Independence Training Gear Moment brought to you by TrainingAZ.com. All right. Our topic for the week uh, is <clears throat> the uh, part two of our IFAC Lifesaver program. Last time we left off talking about trauma centers and things like that. 
And uh, we said we were going to start with TACVAC, CADZAVAC, and signaling. So we're going to get into that, getting help to you, so to speak. So we're going to do that. Um, this is through our IFAC Lifesaver presentation. A lot of you guys have emailed us asking, asking us for it. We've sent out to everybody uh, who's asked, if you want to copy the presentation, you can email us info at trainingaz.com. Uh, we still got several more show sessions before we can get to the whole, the whole presentation, definitely. Today, we are uh, beginning on slide number 12, if you're looking at it, uh, or page 12, if you're looking at the PDF. So... <clears throat> Uh, this is the emergencies can happen anywhere slide. So ending last time talking about hospitals and that, uh, going to talk about TACAVAC versus CASAVAC or tactical evacuation versus casualty evacuation. Uh, TACAVAC or tactical evacuation is when we are bringing help to us. A casualty evacuation is when we are taking the patient to help. So TACAVAC, let's start with that. Um, Signaling is incredibly important here. You've got to make sure that you have passive signals that can get help to you. So here's some examples. You might, if you're, let's say you're at home, you can have a flashing light. You could have uh, a, someone turning this porch light on and off. You could put all the hazards on in your vehicle. You could hit the panic button on your vehicle and let it just sit out there and honk and flash lights. You could... <coughs> Uh, shake and break a, or break and shake a whole bunch of freaking chem lights and throw them in the road. Hey, when you're driving over green chem lights, that's me. Uh, you could put a strobe out there, basic LED strobe. That's easy to see in an environment. You could put out, and especially a, a residential environment, um, you can put out a big orange panel such as a VS-17 or an aviation signal panel. A lot of things you could do to create a passive signal. Active signals are things that require someone doing something. So like blowing on a whistle, waving your arms, uh, you know, spinning around a, a, what we call a buzzsaw, which is basically a chem light attached to a freaking piece of rope or paracord, uh, building a signal fire. These are all things that are active signals. They require effort and energy. I'm not a fan of active signals if I can avoid it. I want passive signals, things that don't take my time. So whether it's residential, commercial, in town, out of town, up in the mountains, Make sure you have no less than three ways to passively signal for help. Yeah, I really like the uh, the strobes because they're super easy and they're super lightweight. They're really, really small. Like the core survival ones are the ones everyone usually goes mm. to. They're like 204 bucks. It's like, yeah, I have one. I bought it a while ago. It's very robustly built. But the old Amazon knockoff. $33. At the end of the day, it's still just a strobe. Yeah, these probably don't have IR cape, which is really not that important. Doesn't matter. Like, the battery life is forever. They both run on 123 alphas. Like, it's not that much difference. And these ones are 30 bucks. And I know some guys that had these and they actually held up pretty well. Um, I like these because they're, like I said, they're, they can fit in like a pocket of a pack or like jeans pocket. Mm. They're also Velcro. So you can Velcro them to the outside of packs, to something. I have them on my visor because they're really lightweight. So my vehicle visor, it's just Velcroed up there. So if I'm ever like pinned <laughs> in my vehicle, I can just pull it off of my visor. I can access it all times pretty much. Um, but if you get the cheap ones, I mean, you can just throw them in a pack, do whatever with them, and they're pretty good. You can get a Firefly, which is a civilian version of the old MS-2000 military strobes for about 50 to 60 bucks. You can get find a Firefly. And the Fireflies... 
like the old MS2000 used to run for about 50 hours. So we, we just remember two days, right? Like if you had a fresh set of AA, especially the lithiums, uh, in, in an MS2000, that bitch would run for two fucking days. I've never... That's plenty. I've never changed the battery in my core survival ever. No. In the last probably like four years I've had it. I even found some cool uh, strobes. I'm, I'm playing with one right now that's sitting in my garage. Um, <clears throat> and I bought it from Home Depot for 15 bucks. It's a crazy bright strobe. Flashes and does all this crazy is shit. The, is it one of the, that puck, little, the ones puck ones? Like yeah. this? Yep. Yeah, like what do they little, call those? This is a they call US, them, they, they call L- them road flares. USB road, road, flare. road flares, yeah. yeah. And what are they, like a three-pack for 30 bucks or 40 bucks? a three-pack with the charger and a case for $20 there you go. on Amazon. I just keep it in my side pocket of my yep. forearm. <clears throat> so really, really <laughs> inexpensive. I'm playing with one of them right now. Um, i kind of comparing it to some other strobes. Might do a video on it later, but... Really, really inexpensive, easy to freaking use, and they're fifteen bucks for a, for one of them. Yeah. You go on Amazon, there's a three pack for freaking twenty bucks, even better. So there's no reason to not have these kinds of things in your vehicle with you in a pack, you know, whatever. So you can get the old Phoenix strobes, and you really want like the lightest weight strobe ever. Get the old Phoenix strobes. They're a, a little tiny thing, about the size of a nine volt battery. You hook a 9-volt battery up to them, so those two things combined is the size of the, of the whole package. You hook it up to it, and that thing just runs. And that thing will run for days on a freaking 9-volt battery. So consider that. Like, there's so many easy ways to let people know where you are and to, to signal them to you. Yeah. So getting someone to you, <clears throat> right? Creating, uh, reducing obstacles is another thing you can do. Remember that professional responders, this is just their job. And they have limitations on what they are allowed to do. You have no limitations, for the most part, about what you are capable of doing. So if you can move cars out of the way before the fire truck shows up, move cars out of the fucking way. If you can pull the vehicle out of the driveway so the ammo can pull in, move the car out of the driveway. Whatever you can do, TACOVAC, getting help to you. If you can go unlock the gate, if you can open up the locked area, if you can whatever, man. If you could literally put out a row of orange cones and just tell someone, track the orange cones to the patient, whatever it is, do everything that you can to help your rescue. Everything you can to assist professionals. Professionals are human beings. They get lost. They make mistakes. They accidentally turn down the wrong road. Help them avoid doing that. Reduce the amount of restricted area that they have to move through. Do everything you can to get things out of the way. Do everything you can to make it so damn easy for them to find you. We were talking with uh, Kevin from Prepared Med, if I remember correctly, it was Kevin, um, I don't know, quite a while ago on the show. And, you know, he was saying, like, his number one complaint was not putting numbers on your house where people can easily see them. He was like, if it was up to him, it would be like required that you put the numbers to your house on your damn door. You know, he's like, we can find the door, we can find the house. It's like, sometimes we're looking at a you know, tight neighborhood, you know, whatever, uh, subdivision. He's like, it's hard to find the damn numbers. The numbers up behind a tree or, you know, behind some decoration or it's a black number on a darkly painted house and it's, you know, 12 o'clock in, in the, you know, at night. It's like, dude, this sucks. It's so hard sometimes to find people's numbers. So, but your house number, right? Look how easy that should be. Everything that I can do to make it easier for help to find me. That's TACAVAC, bringing help to you. Casualty evacuation, moving your patient to help. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that I have to CASAVAC my patient all the way to help. Now, I might 
Because here's what ambos won't do. An ambo isn't going to drive down the sidewalk. An ambo is not going to double the speed limit. An ambo isn't going to be willing to do the things I'm willing to do to get my loved one to a higher level of care. I will do that. Because it's me. This isn't my job. This is my life. My life is on the line here if, if someone that I care about that I love is in jeopardy. For an ambo driver, and this is nothing against them, but this is their job. It's just Monday. This is the sixth call of their shift, you know, and, and win, lose, or draw, they still have to get a sandwich afterwards, you know? If you die in transport, that sucks, but they don't, they can't think about that shit. If they take it personally, you'd last about one fucking day on that job. And then you'd be very, very upset person because you, you take everything personally. You can't take it personally. You do the best you can to do your job and then you got to move on. <coughs> Yeah. Because you are going to lose people in those jobs. No matter what you do, you're going to lose people. And so it's just a job to them. So they're not going to do anything that puts that job, their paycheck, their pension, their livelihood in jeopardy. They're not going to fucking do it. And that's understandable. Understand it going into it so that <laughs> you do a better job at Kazavak. Kazavak to us is more like self-rescue. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get our patient closer to that next level of care. So consider something like making sure that, you know, if you live in an apartment complex and you're on the third story, you get that patient to the bottom story. Even better, get them to the main office. Even better, get them to the major crossroads. Even better, meet the AMBO in transit somewhere. Even better, let the AMBO, help the AMBO to avoid any nasty obstacles and where it's basically straight shot in and out kind of stuff. Best, get them to that higher level of care on your own. In 2019, the American College of Surgeons showed that you were about six times as likely to die in the back of an AMBO as if you self-transported. And that major factor, there were some other factors as well, but the major factor was time. Yeah. It takes forever because people don't understand they have to get the tone at the station. They've got to stop eating, stop playing video games, just like you said, put on all their stuff, grab all the gear, get accountability, unchalk the trucks, drive the trucks out, drive to you. Get out, retruck the truck, truck, get all the gear out, and then walk up to you. And that's just, we've gotten to you now. Now they're going to stabilize you. Then they're going to get you back in, and now they're going to drive you to wherever hospital you're going to. I mean, all that stuff takes a lot of time. And for someone with, you know, 10 minutes left in them, they probably just aren't going to make it. It's too long. Especially if you haven't done anything in the meantime. You haven't been proactive in the situation. Most times what happens is somebody gets hurt, we call EMS, and then we just wait because help is coming. And this person's just continuing to go downhill. And remember, it's there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's yeah. your emergency. So you can kind of combine the TACAVAC and CASAVAC concepts. Always be self-rescuing. One of the things that we cover heavily in our programs is always be self-rescuing. You know, yesterday, Gabe and, and uh, Adele were teaching an IFAC Lifesaver class here at the office, and they were demonstrating, like, some person carries and some buddy drags and things like that. And I was just here at the office doing some other unrelated shit because I just got back from, uh, from a, a different training trip. But I grabbed a couple of really, really basic personnel carriers. My, my favorite litter-type stuff, other than actual litters, which are big, bulky, and expensive, are, like, the quick litter from Rescue Essentials. The APLS, which I love because it's it also favorite. helps treat for uh, for hypothermia. It's also very durable, and the uh, like the Foxtrot from from TacMed Solutions. 
So these are actual, <clears throat> you know, person carrying tools. And, and when you're looking at these tools, um, these are relatively small tools. Like the quick litter is the smallest. I would say the APLS is probably the next smallest and the, the Foxtrot from TacMed Solutions is the next smallest. Now, the Foxtrot is going to run you about eh, 200 bucks. It's a hard litter, comes in a big, you know, um, protective case and easy to carry around. <clears throat> It's got lots of straps to put a patient onto, you know, multi-person pickup, drag. It's got a whole harness system so that you can literally strap a harness onto your body if you've got to drag someone the fuck out of somewhere. So I really recommend having one of these things. You know, if I've got to move somebody, and I don't give a fuck who you are. I don't care how strong you are, how athletic you think you are. And don't even bring up the, well, when adrenaline hits, let me stop you right there. That's the last thing you fucking want, all right? Because then you make bad choices. So I don't want the adrenaline to help me be strong. It's not what I'm looking for, all right? That's fuck you. stupid. It's just going to fuck me up. So... <laughs> If I need to move somebody, it's exhausting. I mean, even if I have to pick up Drew, Drew is, is smaller than me. I can pick her up right now, no problem, easily. But to pick her up and run a distance with her, to pick her up and carry her over varied terrain, to pick her up and if I lived on the, you know, if we lived on the third or fourth, you know, floor of an, of an apartment and I've got to carry her down multiple flights of stairs, I'm not saying I'm not going to get it done, but it's going to take me a little while. It's fucking exhausting to do that kind of shit. So if I have something that can assist me, especially if I happen to have multiple responders, then even better. So I'm literally looking this up as we go along. TacMed Solutions, Foxtrot, about 230 bucks. Yeah. Um, the Rescue Essentials Quick Litter. NARS got them for 31 and then Yeah, I got them for, for 30 bucks. Yeah. Straight from straight from Rescue Essentials, they're $30. Uh, 20, 20 to $30 is what I'm finding here. Very, very very inexpensive, 20, 30 bucks to make a great little litter. And I know if you're a Boy Scout, you're like, but Glenn, I can make a litter if I've got a big blanket and a couple of long poles. And I'm like, cool, go find me a blanket and a couple of long poles while I'm trying to move someone out of here in a fucking hurry. I don't want, I never want to improvise. There's one thing you guys take away from these presentations is stop with the I'm going to improvise shit and stop with the it's better than nothing shit. Better than nothing, no. This isn't 1867. There are so many things that are better than better than nothing. It's like improvised tourniquets. No, they're not better than nothing. They're almost nothing because they don't work most of the fucking time. And when people start talking about, well, I could improvise this or – but no, stop. Just fucking stop. Don't improvise when you can have this shit ahead of time. If I'm improvising, shit is awful. If I'm making shit up, shit is awful. All right, APLS. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Kind of hard to find. Uh, 150 bucks. Them, yeah. APLS litter is about 150. Uh, if you go on eBay, here's one for 80 bucks. So they're from a company called Lifeguard, um, from Integrated Medcraft, and they're yeah they're about 100 150 bucks brand new. So if you go to Integrated Medcraft, you can find the APLS Lifeguard, and they're about 150. So you got a 20 dollar option, 150 dollar option, and a 230 dollar option. There you go. You got options that help with both Tacovac and Kazovac. So make sure you are always be self-rescuing. Always be moving forward. The closer I can get. If they're in the backyard and I move them to the front yard, that saves me time. If they're in the front yard and I move them down the street to the big open area, that saves me time. If I move them to the major crossroads, that saves me time. And time is of the essence here. 
So the next thing we're looking at is what is a casualty? Who is your patient? So often when people take first aid classes, uh, they are taking them with the idea to help someone else, which is a very noble concept, but it is not necessarily the only thing we're the only person we're going to be helping. It'd be better for you to start visualizing, start being realistic about the fact that the person you're most likely to put your hands on is going to be someone that you love. And that can be challenging to do. And I will tell you guys a, a story here because I think it's relevant. Uh, prior to having kids, I had put my hands on people to help them. I have no problem with blood. I have zero problem with shit, piss, vomit, guts. None of that shit bothers me. It just doesn't. I'm not, it doesn't make me tough. If you have a problem with that, it doesn't make you less tough. It just bothers some people and it doesn't bother other people and it doesn't fucking bother me. So, um, so whatever, right? I'd, I'd already, I'd already done that kind of stuff. Uh, my oldest son was about, I don't know, maybe two years old or so. And uh, I was over at a friend's house. We were playing cards and he comes down the stairs and he's crying and his head is bleeding. He's got a scalp wound and it's bleeding. I like jump up. I almost knock over the fucking card table, right? And it, keep in mind, I've already handled emergencies up to this point. I'm a pretty calm dude in emergencies. Drew can tell you, she's seen me, she's seen me move and maneuver in an emergency. I go to a whole other fucking level, right? It's just, it's just how I'm good at that right? It doesn't make me this or that or anything. It's just how I figured out how to operate over the years. I look at the human body as a machine. It has a computer system, a mobility system, ventilation, hydraulics. If I can keep those things working, I can keep this person alive. I can keep this machine working. I, but in this case, I fucking jump up. I run like halfway upstairs. I scoop up my kid. He's fucking bleeding all over the place, right? I'm running down the street. I'm like fucking splashing blood everywhere. I like blood speckles everywhere. I run into the bathroom. My, my buddy's poor wife, you know, she's got these nice hand towels. I fucking grab the hand towel. I smash it down on the scalp. He's crying. I'm like, oh my God, you know, and, and I'm done. And then I pull it away and then I rinse his head and I get a good look and it's the tiniest little fucking cut. And basically, you know, one of the other kids, they've been playing around and, and, and my boy took a fucking Thomas the Tank Engine to the head, which is these little metal die cast <laughs> motherfuckers, you know. So he's got a nice little bruise, a little, little goose egg, little cut. He calms down. I calm down. They get the bleeding stopped. It was, you know, it's a scalp wound, so it does bleed a lot. I get it all taken care of. You know, uh, my buddy's like, we're all done and everything. And my buddy is like leaning against the, the uh, doorway. He's just watching all this happen. So we're all done. And I'm like, holy shit, man. And my buddy goes, hey, man, I've never seen you freak out like that before. That was fucking wild, you know? And he's like, you're always so cool. And I'm like, you know what I realized then? That was the first time in my whole life, despite what my previous experiences were, that I had put my hands on somebody that meant the world to me. My own kid. My own people. I love some of the people I had helped before, but not like this. Mm -hmm. And literally that day I was like, man, I have a little bit of fucking soul searching to do. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I need to fucking get my mind right about this shit. Since then I've had to help my kids several times with some pretty nasty stuff, right? Got a lot of kids and they're savages. They hurt themselves frequently or they like to choke on pizza in a brewery in Jacksonville, Wyoming. <laughs> and, uh, and we just fix it. You know, I don't freak out anymore with my own kids any more than I do with random people because I've got my mind right after that first incident. I get my mind right about what I'm doing. If I go into robot mode and I look at the body as a machine and I can fix this machine, 
and I can keep this person alive. And when it's someone who's near and dear to me, this is even more important. So I've got to keep it together. And so starting after that day, all my visualization, all my scenarios were about helping my kids. Anyone who takes a class from me today will hear me talk about my kids every single class. Because even with self-defense, I am constantly putting that in my brain. I am constantly thinking of that, helping my kids, defending my kids, protecting my kids. It's not because I don't love anybody else, but because those are the people that are most fragile in my mind, in my life. You know, like, yeah, I have visualization, uh, you know, of helping and defending and protecting Drew, but Drew is also capable. If she's, if, if she's hurt, she's also helping me. If we're in self-defense mode, she's also helping me. Very different when it's your little kids. So you got to get right about who your patient's going to be. And it's not probably going to be just some arbitrary person on the side of the road. When we take typical first aid classes, rescue Andy or whatever, you know, and it's like that's we're, – we're used to doing CPR on dummies, not real people. Yeah. You know, we do first aid on, on other people in class who are laughing and joking. We're thinking always of doing it on someone else and not someone that we love the most. And do we know who the number one patient may be? Yourself. It's you. You're the number one patient. Which means that which means that you've got to make sure that you consider self-aid. Everything you do for someone else, for the most part, you have got to be able to do for yourself. You need to be able to self-rescue. Without that, you can't take care of the number one patient. And if you are hurt, you cannot help anybody else. So you've got to make sure that you take care of yourself. And for everybody who else is around you, your spouses, your kids, your friends that you go hiking with, that they are also well-trained, so thus they can help you as Mm -hmm. well, which is something that we teach. Uh, I, I was just teaching Stop the Bleed on Saturday, and... That was a huge focus for us because there was all these people. They're like, yeah, we go off-roading. We do this. My spouse, blah, blah, blah. But none of those people were there taking the course with them. So I think it's equally as important for, obviously, number one is primary. But you want to make sure that if you yourself are down, you can be the greatest medic. But if the medic's hurt, everybody else has got to figure out how to take care of you. And this was the whole idea of Teachable C, right? I mean, this is what drove all of this information from the military was if you have one medic per unit and he's carrying the majority of the supplies, if not all the supplies, and he is taking care of everyone who's wounded, what happens when he runs out of supplies? What happens when he gets hurt? What happens when he can't make it to you? If the people who are getting hurt cannot fix themselves, this is the self-aid, buddy-aid concept. Mm -hmm. If I cannot fix myself, if my buddy cannot fix me, or at least keep me alive until the medic shows up. So that's a critically important thing. This is like literally as an instructor, one of my pet peeves, especially, and I, women, we love you, but you're, you're going to be the, the focus of this pet peeve. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. My husband will take care of me. No, he will not. First of all, again, I love you, but your fucking husbands are probably not as capable as you wish they were. All right. Do Mine they f- is. Well, you're blessed, my dear. Blessed, all right? Are they physically fit? Do they understand combatives? Do they regularly train in combatives? Do they understand the tools they're carrying? Do they regularly train with the tools they're carrying? 
Do they understand medicine? Do they regularly train with medicine? I don't give a fuck what they used to do. I don't give a fuck what their resume is. I don't give a fuck what they did once upon a time. What do they do now? What are they capable of now? So first of all, be realistic about what people, if you're going to 100% depend on someone else to take care of you, which is not what we're teaching, then you better make sure they are the fucking best. And you better make sure you never leave their side. So this is something that we too often hear ladies say, well, my, you know, it's my husband. I just know, you know, he carries a gun and he'll protect. It's like, dude, is he trained to do that? Is he trained in executive protection? Because you're asking your husband to put you as a principal and make sure that beyond and up to and including giving his life for you, which is what we do in things like executive protection and how to protect you specifically, not just step in front of you. That's being a shield. That's not, they don't call it body shielding. They call it bodyguarding. All right. So is he trained specifically and exclusively in executive protection? Not only that, but have you trained those techniques together? Yeah. Because all of that requires the principal to understand what's going to happen if something happens, Mm -hmm. how they need to react to that, right? Like, obviously, yeah, you kind of manhandle them into position and stuff like that. But if they don't have a general concept of what you're going to do to them, they might run away from you. They might resist, Mm -hmm. get in your way, not be attached to you the way they should, not be compliant like that. Right, throwing their hands up and stuff—it could cause a lot of fucking problems, you know. And so this same thing extends then to <clears throat> what Drew was saying of making sure the people around you are trained. Do not rely on someone else to protect you, to help you, to heal you, to fix you. And if you are going to rely on somebody else, <clears throat> then you better never leave their side, and you better train together with them all the freaking time. So don't rely on someone else. And all the people around you need to have the same skills that you do, at least at some fundamental level. And this is where some guy will tell me, well, my wife doesn't want to. You got the wrong wife, bro. I don't know what to fucking tell you. You want to live a self-reliant life. Then pick a better one. You, You missed, bro. You missed the fucking mark. And that's hurtful. And some people are upset right now. I know I can feel it. That's okay. I picked the wrong one one time too. You picked the wrong one. If you can never get them on board with what you're saying, then they don't have to like it. It's like my kids. Not all my kids love shooting. Obviously, all my boys do. My daughters are like, man, whatever. You know, they could they could go without it. They enjoy it. They like it. If we're gonna go do it, they'll do it. But they're not like asking me, Dad, can we go shooting? You know, my boys are always like, can we go shoot something? You know, because they're <laughs> boys, right? My daughters don't have to like it. I don't care if they never like it. They're going to know how to use an AR-15, an AK-47, a handgun, a shotgun. They're going to understand combatives. They know how to use a knife. They're going to understand medicine. All the kids have been to medicine, uh, medical classes with us. Half of them, you know, or most of them, I guess, have helped Drew, you know, go to stop the bleed and pass out materials and, you know, help teach kind of and all that kind of stuff. Helping show other kids in class. They're great at They're it. They're going to fucking know. I don't care if they like it or don't like it. It doesn't matter. And so that's another thing too. Like as a, as a we could say the, the leader of my house, as the leader of my family, which is what a good father and husband ought to be. Not to lead from, you know, domination or, any, or anything like that. Not to have unrighteous dominion. But as someone who's setting an example, that kind of leader, the good leadership concepts, like we talked about with uh, Gabe and Daryl a few shows back those good leadership concepts as that type of leader in my house, 
I have to require my people to be physically fit. I have to require my people to understand medicine. I have to require my people to know how to shoot, to know how to fight, to know how to do these things because I'm not always there. And so when it comes to this concept of medicine, you have to, to Drew's point, teach everyone around you, whether they fucking want to know or not. Your kids don't want to pay attention, give it to them in 15-minute increments. One day a week for 15 minutes, you're going to learn something new about how to save your life and the lives of people around you. Your wife doesn't want to know, honey, I'm going to teach you. You have to fucking know this information. If they flat out fucking refuse to learn how to take care of themselves and you like the kind of stuff we do, this self-reliance, confidence, it, it's always interesting too to me. There's people, like we were just talking about a, a few minutes ago with the Hawaii shit, right? There's all these people, they got the Gadsden flags, they got the mole on the bay, they got the fucking, you know, self-reliance, they listen to all the cool podcasts, they buy all the gear, they, you know, trick out their truck, it's a off-road overland rig, they're wearing, you know, all the right gear, they do all this stuff and their family's not prepared. And I'm like, what do you think's going to happen when the shit kicks off. Yeah, they're just going to die. Because my boys know how to hold up a fucking Overwatch position. If you think it's silly getting smoked by anybody, wait till you get smoked by a fucking 10-year-old on Overwatch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, dude, teach your people shit. Demand that they fucking know. This is life-saving information. Put your fucking phone down. If you can surf fucking social media, honey, you can give me 10 fucking minutes to teach you about some life-saving shit. And if it is a continual problem in your life, you got the wrong ones. Go pick better ones. They're out there. They're waiting for you. Go find them. All right. Before I get too deep in that rabbit hole. <laughs> PPE. Gloves are heavily pushed in the medical world for personal protective equipment. Uh, a lot of that is for protection against bloodborne pathogens. But here's the thing about BBPs. Bloodborne pathogens, number one entry site is not your hands or any bare skin. It is eyes, nose, mouth. So if you're going to protect anything, protect eyes, nose, mouth, especially if you're dealing with compromised chest cavities, squirting blood, things like that. Like we always, whenever we're teaching this in, in real life, we're always joking, like never wound pack with your mouth open. Because inevitably when we're doing our live bleeding trainers during IFAC, someone takes fucking our simulated blood in their mouth. Like every fucking time they're over the wound pack, you know, their mouth's agape and we freaking squirt them with some blood and it goes in their mouth. It goes in their eye. That's Adele's you know. favorite. Oh yeah. Dude. Oh dude. We fucking time that shit. Yeah. If I, if I catch someone slipping. And boom, give him a little pressure on the bleeder, splash. You get him a good splash. Um, don't forget PPE. Eye protection, even a surgical mask, may not be a bad idea depending on the types of environment you're going to be in. Like in my vehicle kits, I always carry surgical mask and obviously eye pro because I'm more likely to be in that type of environment. We're also looking at, you know, gloves are, are fine. <laughs> but here's the thing about gloves. All kits come with gloves, even our kits do. Because it's the most basic, easiest, least expensive, least space-consuming PPE you can put on. Here's the downside to gloves. It's hard to do anything with them on, like almost anything. And if you're going to have them, you have to make sure they fit. Most kits come with extra large, large, whatever. I wear mediums. If I put my mediums into the standard extra large gloves that we put in our kits, I'm going to be swimming in glove, which means that glove's going get to caught, get caught on something, rip, and now I'm out of glove. So... I want to make sure I'm wearing the right size glove, number one. Number two, I want the right color of glove, which means I want light color gloves, light blue, pink, purple, tan. Like the bear claws are awesome from North American Rescue. They come in tan. So I want light color gloves so I can see what is on my hands. Is this piss, vomit, blood? What is this? What's on my hands? It could be water. 
If it's a vehicle accident, it might be fucking Coca-Cola. Not everything that's wet is going to be blood in an emergency. If it's raining, I don't know. I don't know what this is. It could be water, sweat. In Arizona in the summertime, I'm assessing someone, they're doused in sweat. If I'm pulling my hands away, I got to see what's on my hands. If it's black gloves like we see people put in kits, that's a fucking no-go. And by the way, I see a lot of these kits with black gloves in them. Like that instantly tells me that whoever built this kit literally has no fucking clue what they're doing. They lit- And that, that just invalidates everything else they do for me. Just totally invalidates it. Also, don't just focus on putting gloves in your kit because like my ankle rig that I carry has no gloves in it. Yeah, because it's not for anybody else. Not for anybody else. For either, either me or people that I know know. My home kits, no gloves. Yeah. If you're in my home, I'll touch your blood. That's the way I look at it. I'm willing to take that risk. Yeah. I'll touch your blood. Outside the home, anything I've done professionally, yeah, lots of gloves. But also, I have quick surgical masks and usually eye pro. I want to protect all of that. So consider PPE generally. Your goals in all of uh, this is keeping oxygenated blood flowing to the brain. I want to keep oxygenated blood flowing to the brain, which means I got to keep the blood in the body. I got to keep it oxygenated. I got to keep it circulating and I got to keep it warm. That's just March. I just literally said all of March, right? Got to keep it in the body. Got to keep it oxygenated. I got to keep it circulating and I got to keep it warm. If I can remember that my number one goal in all of, of trauma care, especially first aid generally is keeping oxygenated blood flowing to the brain. It's really easy for me to figure out what's stopping that from happening. If something's stopping it from happening, you ask yourself, is the blood leaving the body? Is it getting oxygenated? Is it circulating? Is it getting warm or staying warm? The answer to any of those things is no. Then you got to fix that fucking problem before you do anything else. Then your next goal is to get your casualty to a higher level of medical care. But remember that higher level of medical care is not necessarily the ambulance, the hospital, the ER. It may literally just be the bigger kit that you have at your truck or whatever. Yeah. It might be, okay, I got him from, you know, I treated him with the ankle kit. Now I got to get him to the truck from the truck. I got to get him the Ambo. The Ambo is going to get him to the, to the ER. The ER is going to put him on a bird and get him to a specialty center, right? Whatever it's going to be. You know, so everybody in this chain is always trying to get that casually to a higher level of medical care. You must self-rescue the worst, 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 worst rescues I've ever done have always been on people who did nothing to self-rescue. They sat down, they waited, and usually things got worse, sometimes all the way worse. You have got to be actively self-rescuing, no exceptions. So to go back over March, massive hemorrhage, ensure that they're not bleeding to death. Airway, make sure they have a clear and open airway. Respirations, ensure that they're breathing, even and undistressed. Circulation, ensure that they have a pulse and that all the rest of their blood is circulating well through their body. And lastly, hypothermic shock, treat for shock and maintain body core temp, perfect body core temp, 98.6 degrees. Just two degrees of fluctuation and you're in deep shit. We talked about this at length on the last uh, episode, if I remember correctly. So we'll move on to the next thing. What we're always looking for is what's going to kill them next. What is the next thing that's after them? Keeping oxygenated blood flowing to the brain. What's stopping that from happening? So if you're following along in the presentation, there's a nasty picture of a guy who's been chopped in the neck. 
And then a, a nice video of that that same uh, neck wound all exposed. This guy was chopped at the machete. We use these two things uh, to demonstrate a couple things. One, don't get sucked into the gross wound because the, that neck wound is not even the wound that's killing this guy, right? His hypothermia is going to kill him long before the infection <laughs> from that wound does. The other thing to help us remind is that this helps remind us of is scene safety. Don't forget about scene safety and accountability. We call it SA, like situational awareness, SA, scene Scene safety and accountability before we do march. One, is it safe for me? Is it safe for the patient? If I got to grab the patient and drag them out of there, then that's what I got to do. I don't give a fuck what injuries they have. I might have to move that patient the fuck out of here. Otherwise, they're going to die from something else, right? They're laying on the train tracks, for example. The train is coming. They're laying in the road. It's 117 degrees in the middle of summertime. That makes asphalt about 300 fucking degrees. They're getting third-degree burns all over their body while I sit here and do a neat assessment or put a tourniquet on them. Fuck that. This is a dangerous scene. Get them the fuck out of there. They're pinned between some shit. Mm -hmm. Whatever it may be, get them the fuck out of there. And then accountability. Is everyone here who's supposed to be here here? This guy who's been chopped in the neck is immediately going to draw my attention. Meanwhile, I don't pay attention to his buddy who's passed out on the other side of the bushes who has a worse wound. But I got so sucked into this thing that I never checked the area. I didn't ask this guy if there were further, uh, you know, victims. Five minutes later, he's going, hey, hey, where's my buddy? And you're like, oh, fuck. All right. This is a big deal in vehicle accidents. Always making sure we know exact number of uh, uh, expected occupants in a vehicle. So don't forget about SA, scene safety and accountability. All right. Um, overall general patient assessment before we get into massive bleeding is one, you got to take command. All right. You have got to take command of the situation. Assume you are the most competent, most confident person until proven otherwise. If someone shows up and goes, I'm a doctor. Cool. What kind of doctor? Because I don't need a proctologist right now. Yeah. Are you a trauma doc in an emergency room? Get your ass over here. Right. Oh, you're a psychiatrist. Okay. I may not need your help, but that doesn't mean you can't put them to help or put them to use as help. They can maybe go, they can help you hold this or whatever, right? If they're a, a real doctor or a real nurse or a real medic or whatever, maybe they can come over and help you. But until they prove to know more than you, I don't give a fuck what your resume is right now. But take command of the scene. Contact emergency services as soon as possible. That may not be immediately, unfortunately. I may need other devices. I mean, you have a GPS transponder, an inReach, or a spot, or using Apple's SOS service. I may not be able to call 911. But get them. If it is 911, whoever, get them contacted as soon as you possibly can. Give them the location where you are, what you need, and what happened. That's it. They don't need BP and, and uh, heart rate right now. They don't need age of the victim. They don't need any of that shit. It's not fucking useful to them right now. <clears throat> Again, check safety of yourself and the patients throughout the process. Anytime a situation starts to become dangerous, get the fuck out of there, and that includes dragging a patient with you. Go through march, massive bleeding, airway, respirations, circulation, hypothermia. Take notes and check your equipment. Make sure everything's as it should be, and then remarch. And then take notes and check your equipment and then remarch. And then take notes and check your equipment and remarch. And keep doing that until you get them to the higher level of care. One thing I would definitely add with that is like task organize people. You know what I mean? People can either screw you over in a situation. We talk about kind of like scene safety and accountability. If this is out in like the general population, people are going to generally they want to help, but they don't know what to do. Right? So if somebody seems relatively competent and you can pull them into the situation for the better, 
you know, tell them if you're assessing a patient, you know, start from the feet, I'll start from the head and you guys, mm. you know, divide and conquer like that. It can be really, really useful and help save you time. Or if it's you and another buddy and you guys have trained together like you're supposed to, then you guys can just work that patient super, super efficiently. You know, but task organized, I think, is super important. Have you got the presentation pulled up over there, Gabe? Negative. No, go ahead and pull it up. <clears throat> All right, so the number one medical priority is early control of severe hemorrhage. All right, you've got to make this happen quickly. There's three types of bleeding we're dealing with here. Arterial, which is hydraulic bleeding, leaving the heart and going through the hydraulic hoses, which are the arteries. All right, so hydraulic pressure builds from the heart, pushes out through the arteries at about one to three PSI, depending on where the artery is located at. All right. Under arterial bleeding, it's pumping out under hydraulic pressure. As long as the heart is pumping, blood is coming out. In venous bleeding, veins are based on a vacuum system. So every time the heart's completing its cycle, it's creating hydraulic pressure and vacuum pressure, hydraulic pressure and vacuum pressure. And so when it's creating vacuum pressure, it's sucking deoxygenated blood back through <laughs> the veins, which means if I cut a vein, it's like cutting a vacuum hose basically on an, a vehicle engine. It disrupts the vacuum. The vacuum no longer is going to work until... The blood is clotting. The vein then heals under the clot or the scab. The scab peels off. As soon as that vein reconnects, it immediately restores uh, vacuum pressure. Same way that happens on a vacuum hose on an engine. As soon as that, that hose is reconnected, it restores vacuum pressure. And so veins just drain when they're cut. So some blood will come out, but not a massive amount of blood. Arterial is active volume loss. It's going to keep pumping out blood until you've lost too much. Now, how much is too much? The average adult's got about five liters in their body. The average kid's got about three liters of blood in their body, roughly. The average adult can lose 40% of their blood, which is about two liters, and then they are dead. That's unrecoverable, irreversible shock. So at a half a liter of blood loss in an adult, you are technically bleeding to death, which means your hydraulic system no longer has enough pressure to properly circulate blood through everything that's necessary. So what starts to happen here as this is happening is you start losing functions. You know, you may lose uh, fine motor skill. You may lose gross motor skill. You may lose the ability to stand up. You may lose your balance. You may lose cognitive ability. People go temporarily blind. They go temporarily deaf, right? Their body starts to shut down. People piss their pants, shit their pants, vomit. Their body goes through the purge. A lot of crazy stuff starts to happen. And so as this is all happening, things are getting worse. This is why shutting ble all bleeding down incredibly fast is important. I would rather stop bleeding and reassess the wound than assess the wound and realize, oh shit, this thing needs greater intervention than what I'm giving. So the next slide uh, is, oh, I'm sorry, capillary bleeding is also on that slide. Um, capillary is, is very small, technically hydraulic hoses, but all the way at the very, very end of the line. It's what feeds your skin cells, your hair follicles, stuff like that. It's minimal, minimal amount of bleeding. You're talking about paper cut level bleeding here. There's another, so the next slide is basically uh, these three pictures that are a big uh, knife cut on one arm, a, a motocross peg ripping open a leg, and then a through-and-through -through gunshot wound on an arm. The question is, is this life-threatening hemorrhage? No, it's not. Again, we're driving home the point of nasty-looking wounds or distracting wounds are not my primary issue. March them. All of these would fit in the circulation portion of March. None of these are catastrophic bleeding. Don't get sucked into nasty, gross-looking wounds. 
The next video is of an our actual arterial bleed, a femoral bleed on a pig, and it's a 30-second long video. And in this 30 seconds, right out about a half a liter is lost. That's a shitload of blood, right? That is technically now bleeding to death in 30 seconds. It happens very quickly, especially on the larger vessels closer to the point of origin. So, you know, in the groin, in the armpit, in the neck, close to the point of origin, these are fast, fast, fast deaths. How much blood can an average adult lose? Like I said, about 40%, two, two and a half liters. This can happen in as little as a couple of minutes. On average, it's about three to five minutes. On average, people are bleeding to death three to five minutes. Remember, that's irreversible. Now, you could save someone, let's say at two minutes, you stop someone from bleeding, but it takes you hours to get them back to a higher level of care. They might still die from hypothermic shock or something else if I cannot replace what the blood was doing in their body. This is why we're looking in the field at things like whole blood replacement, you know, the use of TXA, all that kind of stuff. And that's a very slow thing that's happening in the clinical realm, but it, it is happening. Uh, next slide is, is a, uh, a video of two guys installing a, a sheet of glass. The glass breaks, gives one guy a brachial artery um, injury, and he's bleeding all over the fucking place. We use this in class to, one, visually show people what bleeding actually looks like. Active bleeding is actively leaving the body under pressure. It also uh, demonstrates situational awareness or, uh, as the scene safety and accountability issue. There's two guys involved here. Everyone immediately looks at the guy who's bleeding the worst. Now, he obviously is the priority, but what about the other guy? Once I've got massive hemorrhage shut down on one guy, I need to check the other guy. I don't go through the full MARCH acronym. MARCH is what I use to triage and treat. So if I have one patient, he's getting all of March. If I have two patients, I check everyone for M, then everyone for A, then everyone for R, etc. The other point I like about this video is it's, it's a much more subtle thing, but we always say like patients do weird stuff when they get injured. And if you notice in the video, they have like a little blanket set down where I'm assuming they were resting the glass on before they picked it up, right? Once he starts bleeding, he immediately tries to start to bleed onto that blanket, which is not something anyone normal would think. They think, oh my God, I'm bleeding. But that's how the mind works when it's injured. It just goes into autopilot mode. And this guy's more worried about getting blood on the job site than he is about the fact that he's actively dying. Mm. So keep that in mind. Patients are going to do weird things. They're going to wander off. They're going to try and... They're going to help you sleep gonna, yeah. road debris off the road after yeah. a car accident. Like they're yeah. going to do weird stuff because they just don't... They're not there. Yeah. They're not all there. So don't well, listen. Like take everything a patient says with a grain of salt and be like, yeah, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll look at it. But... You need to stay on task. Like, don't let a weird patient derail you from giving mm -hmm. treatment. It's very easy to let happen. And in this case, there's a scene safety issue as well. They've shattered broken glass that's sharp enough to slice this guy's, you know, brachial artery open. I don't want to be treating that guy. I'm not going to kneel down in that. I'm not going to lay him down in that. So now I have to be able to very quickly get him out of there. I might be plugging that artery with my finger. I might be using a pressure point, whatever it is. I am doing something to get that dude the hell out of that very quickly and get him laid down in an environment uh, where I can work on them effectively, not in a bunch of broken glass. And I feel like glass working on patients in a glass environment, especially like this where it shatters and goes everywhere, now you're dealing with little shards of glass in their clothes, mm -hmm. and now you have to think about how are you safely going to mm -hmm. treat this patient and not get glass in yourself. 
Yeah. Especially during the assessment. You know, if I'm doing this active raking and I'm I'm putting my hands under their yep. clothes or I'm raking their body and they've got shards of glass in there, well, great. Now I slice my hand open on a piece of glass and now I'm fucking bleeding. You know, so um, and now I potentially if I'm working on a stranger, now I definitely do have a bloodborne patch <laughs> entry site. Yeah. So I want to make sure, like Drew said, that again, I'm creating a safe environment for me to work in. And that includes disarming people if they have weapons on them. That includes getting them out of, you know, debris. That includes getting them out of broken glass. That includes, you know, maybe cutting open their clothes just to make sure everything dangerous is, that's inside is out. It could, that could be things like broken shards of glass. Um, so first steps immediately available uh, are when we're dealing or immediately important, I mean, when we're dealing with arterial bleeds is one, I got I, I to gotta look at if I don't have a tourniquet available. First thing I do is get them into a good body position. I do not want them standing up. If someone is arterially bleeding, I've got to get them set down, kneeling down, laying down, closer to the ground so that if they fall, if they go unconscious, I have a capability to protect their head. If their head knocks off the ground and now they have a head injury, that's stuff I can't fix out there. So really important for me to protect that head. I want to look at the consideration of things like pressure points. This is direct pressure on the arteries above the wounds. If I can, I can hold that, I can't stop the bleeding this way on an adult, but I can definitely slow it down and control it while I'm getting a tourniquet out or while someone's running to get me, you know, gauze and a bandage if I don't have anything immediately on me. So using pressure points is important. And then lastly, always consider that packing and bandaging, which we're going to be doing on the next show, always considering that packing and bandaging is like the most important thing in bleeding control because I can do it all the time and I can do it to anyone. All right. <clears throat> so... Tourniquets that we recommend, Gabe, I'm going to let you take over. So the tourniquets that we recommend, and there are a lot out there that are not legitimate tourniquets. The two things that the committees that approve tourniquets require is two inches minimum width so that it can add circum um, – what's it called? Circumference. Circumventual pressure. Circumventural pressure, right? Because we, we can't do what's called cheese wiring, which if you could imagine pulling a wire through cheese, it will cut the tissue. So it needs to be wide enough so that we can compress – all of the tissue to then compress the bone, or I'm sorry, compress the artery against the bone and pinch off that artery, pinch off that hydraulic hose. So anything that is thin and skinny, <coughs> rats tourniquets, is not a real tourniquet. It's a piece of shit. It's a piece of shit, and you can use it to tie shit down in the bed of your truck, and that's about it. So the tourniquets that we do recommend are going to be the CAT. It's been around since 2002. It's now on the seventh generation. Um, lots of updates in polymers and slight design changes. Um, they have a great shelf life. If exposed to constant UV rays, they are good for 24 months. But the second you put it in a pouch, a backpack, glove box, anything like that, they're good for a very, very long time. Um, all these tourniquets get tested very rig rigorously. They are you know, not prone to UV damage or salt water doesn't degrade them. The glues and materials used are tested very, very thoroughly. And that's why they're approved. The other one is the Soft TY. Um, it is similar to the cat, except for it has a metal windlass um, and a triangular little loop to secure the windlass in. It also uses more of a seatbelt material um, as the strap. It also has a metal buckle system. A little bit different technique when applying this one, um, but they they do have their pros and cons as far as they can pack down really small. They're less bulky and things like that. And then the TMT, which is essentially if the soft tee and the cat had a baby, um, kind of best of both worlds, but it is the largest of the three. So it's much more difficult to carry on a, in a pouch or something like that. Or if you're going to everyday carry a TMT, they're, they're pretty big, but they are really good tourniquets as well. Um, so those are the ones that we recommend. When you're applying them, 
we need to go above the wound at least three inches. Now, initially, if you can't identify the site completely, let's say the guy's wearing a flannel, not heavy enough where I need to in, like cut this whole sleeve off, still considered street clothes depending on the garment, but we can still put a tourniquet on. But I can't completely identify where the bleed is. I just see pooling soaking on an arm. Now, I can go high and tight and then later put one closer in the proper place, but initially I need to get one high and tight. Now, if I can see the wound, let's say T-shirt, um, and it's in, let's say, the forearm in the two-bone compartment, I would go about a palm's distance or a hand's distance above that because arteries are similar to rubber bands in the sense that they can retract if fully severed, and they usually retract anywhere from two to three inches. So we want to go upstream enough so that we can pinch it off and not worry about being too low down. We also never go on joints because if you think about what joints are, it's just bone and cartilage and ligaments and tendons. There's not a lot to compress there. Um, An easy way to measure that is just using the palm of your hand. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're using the palm of our hand. Um, and there's no magic number for how many times you're going to have to turn this windlass. It's body composition and density is going to determine that muscle, lean muscle compresses much easier than fat does. Um, you know, Different size arms, legs are going to compress quicker, but an average is about three to four. But either way, you should be turning until the bleeding stops because that's the goal. So we're not going to stop turning until the bleeding is stopped. Um, the number one failure point of pre-manufactured tourniquets in the field is going to be the initial tightness of it. If you think about what we're trying to do, we are placing a loop over an extremity and then pulling it as tight as possible to then allow the windlass, which gives us mechanical advantage, to then tighten the internals of that tourniquet and compress the tissue. So if we don't get good initial tightness, we can just turn the windlass all day long and it's just going to bind up and it won't actually compress. The whole tourniquet relies on the initial tightness. So you have to get good initial tightness. Um, I have, hey Glenn, what's the, do you know off the top of your head the website that has the approved tourniquets? Yeah, so if you go to the committee, uh, TCCC's uh, information is where they're going to list the approved uh, tourniquets. It's the the CAT, the soft T wide. There's seven right now that I know of. Um, the TMT. I was just trying to <clears throat> find it so I can mm -hmm. give it out to everybody. Uh, there is the SAM XT, which no one on our team really has experience with. Um, there are oh, crap. I'm trying to remember the. Uh, the other three real quick. Let me find it. I um, can't. I'm trying to find it right now, and I cannot find the... Stand by. Um, I got them right here. So, uh, oh, that's it. The RMT. Yeah, the Ratching, ratching. Uh, Medical Tourniquet. Again, uh, I don't have any personal use with this. No one I know except for one other guy who lives down in Florida, uh, Matt Casey from Triad. Uh, he likes them especially for marine-based environments. So... Um, and, and I've had a couple other people recommend them to me for marine and water-based environments because they're easier to use in, in those environments. And, and that's fine. Um, the Cat Gen 6 is also uh, listed on there because it is the a cat, right? And then the, um, the TX2 and TX3 tourniquets, which again, I have no fucking experience with whatsoever. So, um, but those are the, the tourniquets you're looking at. The CAT Gen 7, the CAT Gen 6, the RMT, the SAM XT, the Soft T Wide, the TMT, and then the TX2, TX3. Yeah. So you could technically say there are eight tourniquets because the CAT Gen 6 and CAT Gen 7 are still CO approved, but 
I just say they're seven because you can't really find Gen sixes anymore. Yeah, they they um, flood yeah. as soon as they come out with the new gen, they just flood the market. Yeah, with with the newest ones. Yeah, so so it's pretty much like I. That's why I say there's seven. Technically, there's eight on the list, but that's why yeah. I say there's seven. But those are the approved um, tourniquets for uh, non pneumatic uh, limb tourniquets. No, and go ahead, Drew. I was just gonna say I had a common question uh, in Stop the Bleed this week when or this weekend when I was teaching it. A lot of the, the questions I received is, why are we going one compartment above? And so I really want to reiterate what Gabe was saying with tourniquet application, is we go at least two to three inches above the wound because we're trying to capture that artery, and we're trying to capture it where it's not disrupted. So depending, because we're not, we can't have see-through vision like I was explaining in, in class. So we don't know if it's a full separation of the artery, a partial separation. So let's just assume it's always a full separation and that artery retracts almost like a rubber band. And so it retracts about one to two inches back into the upper body. So when we're applying these tourniquets, it's always important to go at least two inches above the wound and in basically going anywhere in the compartment above wherever the wound is. So I want to really reiterate that portion just because we had a lot of questions in class about that. Yeah, one thing to kind of keep going with the, the tourniquet applications, I'd mentioned street clothes. Kind of what we consider street clothes is, you know, a light flannel, a light t-shirt, light pants, nothing super heavy duty. Carhartt jackets, Sika jackets, cold weather gear, rain gear, all that stuff needs to come off. Otherwise, I am not compressing the tissue. I am now compressing the garment. So shears, again, a good pair of shears is always going to be super, super helpful when you're trying to expose a, uh, a wound or a patient in general. We always say in an ideal world that all of our patients would show up to us completely naked yeah. so that I could see everything going on with them. But that's not how it works. So we have to get them naked. Um, so we're not putting tourniquets over thick, bulky clothing on joints. Again, nothing to compress there. Um, if people have stuff in their pockets, if you have the pockets of a toddler like I do and I have lots of things in them, I need to get all that stuff out. Now, I'm not sticking my hands in people's pockets for the same reason cops don't. You know, I'm not worried about things poking or prodding me. I'm worried about time here. It takes a lot of time for me to reach in somebody's pocket and uh, grab all their stuff out. So again, back to shears. I take my shears, I put the V of the shear in the seam of the pocket, and I just zip it down, and everything falls out, and I can put my tourniquet on. Because if somebody has a nice flashlight, cell phone, you know, the new iPhone, whatever, that's as big as a tablet in their pocket, I'm just going to compress that item and not the tissue. All right. So there's a lot of myths out there about tourniquets. Um, you know, you have to loosen them to, this is my favorite one, you have to loosen them every couple hours to restore circulation to the extremity below the site of the tourniquet. Folks, we have a hydraulic line that is ruptured. There is no more circulation. Even if I release this tourniquet, we're still not getting blood to the rest of the extremity. Does that make sense? Like we get asked that one, like, do you still got to loosen them up to restore circulation? I'm like, what, what circulation are you restoring? Right. It's gone. Like maybe some venous stuff that's not compromised, but that's not as important as the artery is. Otherwise, you would die when you cut your veins and not your arteries, right? It's the other way around. Um, so no, once it's on, unless you're doing a reduction or something like that, it stays on. And how long can you have one of these on for? You know, for a long time, people have said, you tourniquet is a last resort. You're going to have to lose the limb. No, you're not. Maybe not all the time. You can have one of these on for six hours before we start to consider the possibility for some type of tissue, cell, nerve damage. And it's not that the problem is not the tourniquet. It's the wound. 
Because if the wound was still here and I don't put a tourniquet on, that tissue, those cells, all of that is still getting deprived of oxygenated blood. So it's not the tourniquet's fault. It's the wound's fault. The, the, the wound has to be surgically repaired to restore it. Even if I take it off, they're still not getting what they need. So I'll, I'll caveat that to say that if you know it's going to be longer than six hours, you know for a fact you're in back country, you can't get higher level of care, you're in a foreign country, whatever. If you know it's going to be longer than six hours, at two hours – you need to, or before two hours, I should say, uh, before two hours, you need to be considering what you're going to do next. Like um, we can do something called a reduction of tourniquets where we basically apply, now that we've handled the, the immediate emergency and we've got the patient stabilized and, and they're alive, we can put the tourniquet, a, a separate tourniquet closer to the wound, tightening that as we loosen the other one to eventually take off the other one and allow more uh, blood flow and circulation to that limb. We may want to do this because let's say we're out hiking and someone goes down, they've cut their, you know, their, let's say they cut their calf open or something like that. And we just went high and tight because we were freaked out and we put high and tight to the leg. Well, now we need their help to, you know, get us out of here. I've completely eliminated the entire use of their leg. If I could restore even some of the muscular use of that leg, depending on the nature of the injury and how we might need to get out of there, I might, this patient might be able to help me help them, right? So I might want to have to move that tourniquet down closer to the wound again within that palm, like Gabe was saying, two to three inches above the wound, just to be able to eventually restore some circulation to the to that upper cat or that upper thigh muscle, which might help me. I might want to consider wound packing now. Like, okay, I know it's going to be longer than six hours. Before two hours, I've got it all shut down with, you know, tourniquet. All right, now let's go ahead and take our time. Let's get a good pack. Let's get a good tight bandage on there. And now we can go ahead and start loosening that tourniquet. Along that way, I'm also probably splinting this limb. I'm stabilizing this limb. I might use artificial splints, anatomical splints, soft splints, whatever I need to do to stabilize this limb <clears throat> and to be able to, you know, um, get it stabilized and, and secured to the body so it's not moving around and getting injured. So I have more time now. And I have up to six hours to get them to a higher level of care. If I know it's going to be longer than six, then before two hits, I start cons I, I start doing something else to manage that bleeding to be able to restore some circulation to the rest of the limb. Because at that point, you know, amputation, like Gabe said, due to the injury and not necessarily the tourniquet, is more likely just due to cellular death and things like that. <clears throat> so uh, let me see where we're at here. <clears throat> tourniquet mistakes to avoid. The biggest tourniquet mistakes to avoid, not using one when you should. I would rather put one on and be wrong than not put one on and be wrong. Now, I'm not advocating putting tourniquets on everything that bleeds on your arms and legs. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, if you look at it and go, my God, that is active volume loss. Put a fucking tourniquet on it. I can always change that situation. But in the field, most of the time, I can't put blood back in. So it's really important to stop the bleeding and then be able to potentially assess the wound. Not using when you should, number one. If Look, if, if all of this was wrong information, because there'll be clinical people who'll argue with this. Like, look, motherfucker, if this wasn't the fucking right thing to be doing, bleeding to death wouldn't be the number one cause of preventable traumatic death. The Stop the Bleed campaign wouldn't be such a huge issue, such a huge push, if this wasn't a serious problem. If elevation and direct pressure and hopes and mm -hmm. dreams fucking worked, this wouldn't be a problem. But it is a problem. But remember, clinicians want the money. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. <laughs> I love that elevation and direct pressure. It's like when you push your thumb on a garden hose, does the water stop coming That's out? like my favorite analogy is <clears throat> what you say in classes. Yeah, it's like if I gave you a garden hose and I said, hey, I want you to stop the water from coming out of here by pointing it up in the air, holding it over your head. Would you look at me like I'm an idiot? That's elevation of a hydraulic system right there. Yeah. Is gravity greater than this? <laughs> 
hydraulic pressure. No, it is not. You're going to now be covered in water, and it's going to be super gross for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and right. you're going to die like an idiot. Yeah. So not using when you should, <clears throat> most common problem. Now, again, don't put – you don't need a tourniquet for everything. That's ridiculous. All right? So don't do that. Properly assess the wound. Good set of shears. Cut clothes away. Cut equipment away. You know, cut uh, heavy clothing away. Remove safety gear. Take a look at the thing. Make sure it does – but if you're like, my God, because here's the thing. All blood looks like a lot of blood until you've actually seen a lot of blood. And if it's your blood, it's always a lot of blood. So if you look down and go, my God, that's a lot of blood, put a fucking tourniquet on it. It can always reassess. It can always remove a tourniquet. Most people cannot put the blood back in. One of the things with uh, kind of on the assessment part, when it talked when in relation to like catastrophic bleeds, all the time in training, like those OSHA required trainings, so like you come up to a patient, you see a lot of blood on the ground. Okay, what type of ground are we on? Yeah. Right. If I take three cups of equal volume and I pour one on gravel, one on grass, and one on tile, we get three completely different reads of the same amount of blood. So we never want to go off what the ground is telling us, but what the wound in the body is telling us. That that active volume loss, squirting, soaking, pooling, all that kind of stuff. Because it can be deceiving, right? It could look like, oh, that's not a lot of blood if we're on gravel because it's all got soaked in. Other tourniquet mistakes to avoid – don't put tourniquets directly over joints like Gabe talked about. Don't put tourniquets directly over bulky items such as items in pockets, uh, really heavy clothing, safety gear, things that can't be effectively compressed by the tourniquet. You're going to have to cut those things away. This is why a good set of trauma shears is absolutely necessary. Don't bet on a fucking knife to do this shit. You can get a, a rip shear or something like that. That's fine too. You know, one of those clothing zippers. I don't care. Any of those things are fine. Just get the fucking shit out of the way. And then don't loosen the tourniquet. Once it's on, leave it on unless you're doing something like tourniquet reduction or removal because you know, you realized, okay, this wasn't as bad as I thought it was. But if you're dealing with, I just saved someone's life with this thing and now I'm transporting to the hospital, like was already said earlier, no, you don't need to loosen that tourniquet. I would say also don't forget to get initial tightness in here. That is the number one failure of the tourniquet in the field is not getting good, solid right. initial tightness. And a lot of that's because it's put over either bulky clothing or physically everyone's rushing to get to the windlass instead of making sure that good initial tightness is present first. And you can always use a foot. Your patient's going to be laying down. So if you want to get good initial tightness on yeah. a patient, just throw your foot down and use both hands to pull yeah. that strap if, if yeah, you're concerned foot, about knee, it. knee, whatever it takes to get pressure on that thing. And everyone's like... Yeah. I've, I've had this argument before with, you know, a couple combat medic dudes that I talked to online and they're like, yeah, but do you And I go, yeah, but check this out, dude. I'm teaching, like, I get that you're teaching, you know, special forces dudes how to do this. I'm teaching kids and office people. And yeah, sure, we're teaching instruction workers and linemen and, and strong men too. But I also have to teach a 60-year-old lady how to do this. I'm not just teaching badasses. So we can't always just follow TCCC protocol because TCCC protocol is based on military personnel performing this who, in theory, have some level of physical capability. I know that's not always true, but I'm just saying, generally speaking, that there's an expectation there that they can do this effectively. So get initial tightness. Initial tightness should not allow the tourniquet to move at all on the limb. You should have to work to even slide a finger under it. It should be tight as fuck. It should be compressing on its own. It should already be starting to, yeah, it be starting to occlude. So last slide we're going to cover right now is a, there's a picture um, showed a, that shows a tourniquet applied by one of our students. We have a lot of students apply tourniquets. Um, not like a ton, but we've had a lot of them do it. And uh, this is one of the best photos we've ever received. It's like high definition, perfectly clear. picture. <laughs> Back in 2013. Uh, one of our students was able to save a guy's life by putting a tourniquet on him. This is a glass-related injury. Um, it lot, lot goes into this this story, but 
there's a mistake here. He saved this guy's life. And you can see how much blood was coming out versus how much blood is coming out now. This is an older Gen Cat, of course. 2013 was not the Gen 7s. Um, but the guy makes a mistake here. And what he didn't do putting his tourniquet on, he didn't retain his strap. You have to retain the strap. The strap, when put on an arm, needs to be fed back through the retention clip. I like to make a ribbon now around the windlass and then feed the strap back through the retention clips. Now it's going in the opposite way or going out opposite way it came in. Then I'll take that white or gray retention strap and I'll pull that retention strap over to kind of secure everything in place. And then I fucking duct tape that shit. Because I don't want this shit coming off, man. I fucking worked hard for it. Patients like to take this shit off. Shit gets caught on stuff. I don't want to deal with that, right? So secure that tourniquet. Secure it in place. Wrap a bandage around it. I don't care what you do. Do something to secure the strap, secure the windlass, secure the tourniquet. You don't just want and done it. Make sure that thing is 100% secured. You don't want to secure the windlass so much that you can't get access to it later, however. So don't cover it in duct tape. Don't cover it in stuff so that you can't get access to it. Because over time, uh, as, as the adrenal you know, flushes and, and everything kind of calms down, um, vessels open back up, pressure returns normally to the site. You can get what we call re-bleeding. This can happen typical 20 to 60 minutes after the initial injury. Uh, and so I've stopped it initially, and then later it starts bleeding again. This is happening because as the body's, you know, initial reaction to, to trauma happens and swelling and all that kind of stuff is reduced, more pressure returns to the site. So I still want to have that windlass accessible because I may have to throw another turn or two in there later down the road if this is going to be a, you know, extended time rescue. So secure it. Just don't secure it so much that you can't have access to the windlass <laughs> ever again. Bless you. Sorry. One other thing on the securing it, keep in mind that if we get to the point in a tourniquet application, we're now managing the extra strap and securing that windlass. We've already stopped the bleeding. This doesn't need to be done quickly. Nothing we're doing here is going to stop the bleeding faster because it's already stopped. That's what the windlass does. So do this all very deliberately. You're messing with the two things, keeping all of this in place, the strap and the windlass. So take your time, wrap it just like Glenn said and secure it administratively and very deliberately because it doesn't need to be done quickly, right? The initial tightness and the turning of the windlass needs to be done quickly. Then we can whew, take a breath, manage the strap. I do have one last thing that I want to say when doing tourniquet applications, make sure you're talking to your patient if they're conscious and let them know that this is going to be excruciating. Yeah. The other problem is, is like we said already plenty of times before is your patients are do really, really weird things. So once the tourniquet's on and duct tape's in place, you still even need to monitor them because they're going to want to take it off. But not only that, be very careful when you are applying a tourniquet. Make sure you're not standing in front of them so they have the power to hit you in the head <clears throat> or, you know, make sure you're getting all those tools away from them in your assessment because if you're working on your patient and you're not out of the strike zone, you potentially could be making yourself a casualty and just explain it to him that this is going to be the most painful thing, but this is going to be life-saving. So not a lot of people who don't even have this type of knowledge are going to fight you and want to take this thing off because this is all over skin that has been untouched. This isn't in the wound itself. This is above the wound. So this is all uh, clean tissue, fresh tissue. This is undamaged tissue. So be prepared to have a combative patient and make sure the more that you talk to them, I feel doing this 
the easier it's going to be for you and them. So they know what to expect. Yeah, you definitely want to stay on the outside of the patient and not the inside of the patient, not even just for, you know, being concerned about them striking. We had a kind of a funny thing happen uh, up in class in, in Minnesota that I've seen happen before is we were doing our concealed carry concepts class. And one of those things, it's kind of high energy. You, you shoot your way through some scenarios and then, you know, you've got to manage your equipment, holster up. You're talking to the patient while he's on the ground bleeding. And then you got to move over to him, put a tourniquet on. And we had one of our students who was kind of high energy anyways. And he goes and Daryl was, was the, the role player for the medical scenario. And he jumps right in the middle of Daryl, just like right in the middle of him. And he grabs that arm. He starts putting the tourniquet. And he, when he goes to do initial tightness, he just straight up fucking elbow strikes Daryl in the face. <laughs> I mean, straight up fucking hit. So luckily, Daryl almost had to take a hit. He took a good hit. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just go bam, you know. So it's like I like to always work on the outside of patients. Um, it gives me mobility. It keeps me safe. It keeps me uh, out of danger. And it also makes sure that, that I'm not going to potentially cause any more harm to them. Unless I absolutely have to be in their midline, I stay on the outer edges. So, yes. Yeah, Definitely a good point. Thanks for bringing that up, Drew. So that is, for those of you guys following along, uh, next time we're going to be starting on slide 31, getting into wound packing and bandaging. Which is my so favorite. This is Drew's favorite thing. She'll probably be teaching you guys about this next time. So uh, the first show in March, which is going to be March 4th, uh, we will be getting into wound packing and covering you know, hemostatics and wound packing concepts and different types of bandages and all that kind of stuff. So... Again, if you don't have access to the presentation, just email us info at trainingaz.com and we will happily send you a copy of this presentation and the videos so that you guys can see everything that we're seeing. You can follow along. You can help teach other people. You can spread this information. All right. All right. Fitness moment with Drew. Go. So what I want to tell you guys is you guys have to be physically fit in order to work on patients. Working on patients to you is draining. It may not seem like it, but it is mentally draining and physically draining. So if you are not staying up on your fitness regimen, could you imagine trying to do a full head-to-toe assessment? All these slides that we're teaching you, you're putting everything together, together, sorry, and then you get tired. You're winded because you don't have enough strength in your own body to continue going. And now maybe you have to physically remove a patient and move them to a higher level of care. And you might have to drag them for a little bit or you might have to help lift them into a vehicle and meet, you know, the ambulance at a different area. So don't forget to really work on your stamina. A lot of people like to just lift. A lot of people just want to um, just do easy things, work out on their legs and their arms and everything else. Don't forget running. Don't forget swimming. Swimming, swimming is a great way to build up your stamina if you hate running. Uh, there's a lot of different things that you can do. Jump roping is a great way to work on your stamina. So make sure that you are working on that because that's definitely needed when it comes to working on your patient. Fitness Moment with Drew brought to you by MRC McKellar Running Club Phoenix. Monday night runs 6.30 at Chupacabra Tap Room in Mesa. Wednesday night runs at 6.30 at Dad's Eatery in Scottsdale. You don't have to be a fast runner. Our kids rollerblade with us most of the time. You can come out and walk. You can come out and lightly jog. Both locations are a, a about a three and a quarter mile loop, so basically a 5K. Um, but both locations, we also do two uh, laps on the loop so that those people who aren't ready for a full 5k can do the basically a mile and a half. Uh, so 
don't think you got to be awesome. There's only one way to get better is to come out and, and work harder and sacrifice. So you know, don't be that person who's scared to come out because you think you're going to be the worst one there. Even if you are, you're still out there and no one's going to judge you for that. Everyone's just going to want to hang out with you and get to know you. So Everybody uh, starts from scratch. Everyone out there is cool too. So you, you're not going to – it's just other cool people like you. So it's going to be rad. Remember, you can bring us out to train with you. Get hosting information via email, info at trainingaz.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook as The Arms Room Show, Independence Training, MRC Phoenix. We're proud members of the Heroes Media Group. Check out the other cool stuff our network does, all the media, production, publication services that they have. Next week, well, technically, this show is right before the show for... Joe. So next week, i.e. the very next show <laughs> that we've already done, but now we're doing this show. But the next show you guys are going to listen to is Joe Geneza from uh, Vivint talking with us. Uh, he's been on the show before, gave us great information, talking with us about the monitoring systems as opposed to security systems and all of the great things that a security can do to help keep you safe other than just detect and watch out for bad guys. So until then, Stay aware, stay safe, and train hard. You've been listening to The Arms Room.